Welcome to the first live episode of Evidence-Based Radio since the COVID-19 pandemic forced lockdowns across the world. As always, you can find this show on my website if you don't have the chance to listen to it all the way through at evidencebasederata.com. So tonight we are going to talk about evolution and early hominins. Now I've been meaning to do this for a while and I just finally was able to scrape together all of the information that I wanted to talk about. So I'm very excited because this is a really interesting topic. So we're going to start with the discussion of the origins of modern human ancestors and what we do and do not know about them. One of the things that has characterized anthropology is that there are different op- differing opinions depending on which camp you belong to. Now, I've talked about this before. There are lumpers and splitters. Some anthropologists think that there are a wide variety of individual species of early hominins, while others see variation among a smaller set of species. And so if you have heard some, you've probably heard some of these names before, Homo nalendi, Homo um, erectus, Homo um, sapiens, of course, (laughs) Um, and there are a whole bunch of other ones, Homo habilis, and so, and there's also several varieties of Australopithecus, which is a slightly more um, primitive, quote unquote, uh, hominid, and so... Some people think that those are all very distinct and they have very different morphologies. And some people think that they're just variations, some of them, that they're the same species, just with variations. So if you think about humans right now, some of us are tall, some of us are short, some of us are, have, you know, different facial structures. And so part of the problem is, is that the fossil record is so sparse relatively speaking, that it's really hard to pinpoint with certainty one species that is a direct descendant of modern Homo sapiens, for instance. And in fact, modern anthropologists increasingly believe that there was no single origin point and that several different separate but convergent lineages led to the eventual evolution of what would be called modern man. Now, that doesn't mean that there were different species. It just means that there were different subspecies that were all developing and evolving towards what would eventually become modern human beings. Now, one thing is certain, however, is that there's plenty of evidence that humans did evolve from a last common ancestor with champions chimpanzees and bonobos, and that we are definitely primates. And so that is indisputable. 
Um, as far as we can tell, there's no special intervention required to explain the origin of human beings, though obviously some people believe that that's a requirement. And, you know, I don't believe in uh, the spirit in the way that some people do, but if they want to believe that, that's fine. Um, but I think that just... I'm more thinking about the whole, you know, oh, it was aliens kind of thing, because that's, you know, that's where my focus is usually these days. Um, and so, you know, we don't need some sort of alien tinkering uh, to have created humans, that there is at least for that amount of uh, certainty, we can say that when we look at the fossil record, we can see that hominids are, as time progresses, becoming more bipedal, becoming more, um, you know, having bigger brains, having hands that can grip. All of that is in the fossil record. Now, of course, there's a lot left to learn about how our unique traits, such as a lack of body hair, those really intricate and large frontal lobes, and our obligate bipedalism evolved. But we can absolutely find those answers in science and in exploration of the past. And we will continue to find more fossils. We will continue to be able to extract ancient DNA from different areas. And we will definitely be able to get to a point where we'll know more. You know, science is always about progression, um, occasionally about regression, but generally about progression in the sense that science is about learning more and more. And so some of the things we once thought that we knew probably will turn out not to be true in the future. And that's not a bug. That is a feature of science. Um, and so, yeah. All right. Enough of the preamble. Let's talk about some papers. Writing in the journal Nature, researchers from the Francis Crick Institute in London and colleagues note that there seems little reason to look for a single point of descent, given our modern understanding of what can and cannot be explained by the fossil record. We investigate what can be said about where human ancestors lived geographically at different points in time, and whether or not these ancestral groups are represented in the current fossil record. Within this framework, we argue that there is little empirical or conceptual reason to focus on models of a single point in time and space during which modern human ancestry originated, they wrote. And so we know, for instance, that genetic diversity amongst African groups and individuals is greater than in any other part of the world. And so this suggests a recent African origin. The prevailing idea is that a population carrying a subset of African genes migrated out of Africa and then suffered some sort of genetic bottleneck, and that this population is what led to the populations of modern humans outside of the African continent. Evidence to support this includes early fossils in Africa, genomic evidence of breeding with populations outside of Africa, such as Neanderthals and Denisovans, and by the genetic basis for sequences outside of Africa seeming to be based on a blueprint from Holocene Epoch, somewhere around the last 12,000 years to the present, 
Eastern African genomes. But interestingly, we actually have fossil remains that date back far older than this throughout a range of non-African geographies, from fossils in Israel that date to between 90 and 130,000 years old, to Chinese fossils from 80 to 113,000 years old, to Northern Australia, where there are artifacts dated to at least 65,000 years ago. And so the best hypothesis right now to explain these inconsistencies is that there was an earlier dispersal event, but that those lineages were supplanted by the later wave of dispersal and did not contribute to modern human ancestry. We're actually going to talk a little bit more about that at the end of the program. And uh, just as an example, we see this sort of supplanting in the history of dogs in the Americas. Uh, They were largely replaced by imports from Europe, leaving very little genetic signal in modern day dogs. And so just as an example of how populations can be supplanted at a later date, even if they seem to be fairly established in their range. There is also a population of basal Eurasians that diverged from the larger group of the Eurasian population before they began to interbreed with Neanderthals, which probably diverged more than 60,000 years ago. And so, for instance, we find fossils in Morocco around 15,000 years ago and in Georgia around 26,000 years ago that have this basal Eurasian uh, stock uh, genetics. And so the authors argue that while many instances of gene flow between modern humans and both Neanderthals and Denisovans have been proposed, only four have broad consensus, with one not contributing to present-day ancestry. One such flow resulted in approximately 2% of Neanderthal DNA being present in populations outside of sub-Saharan Africa and in lineages going back 45,000 years to ancient individuals in Belgium, Western Siberia, and China. Neanderthal DNA is also present in East and West Africa, suggesting later gene flow from Eurasia back to Africa. So obviously, you don't just have a one-way flow of human beings. People aren't just emptying out of Africa and never coming back. There are definitely people who go out and then come back into Africa and interbreed with existing populations in Africa. And so what's Interesting is that the late Neanderthal populations in Europe don't actually seem to have contributed significantly to the genetic signature found in modern populations of humans, as they are not genetically closer to the source population than Neanderthals from the Caucasus are. And so current divergent ratios of Neanderthal genetic signatures are considered to be explainable by the amount of admixture with basal European genetics. So therefore, Western Europeans have one-fifth to one-tenth lower relative proportions compared to those in Eastern Eurasian populations, and there are intermediary levels in South and Central Asia. And so basically, it's just how many people bred with those basal Eurasians that hadn't interbred with Neanderthals, and so that dilutes the amount of um, signal that there is in the genetic in the uh, genetic code. 
The Neanderthal population that contributed to modern distribution must have come from more than one individual, but probably not a very large population, as there has been almost no reduction in the percentage since around 45,000 years ago, it suggests that natural selection may have started with as much as 10% and rapidly brought it down to the 2% found today, mostly in regions not considered functional. So a lot of the um, DNA from Neanderthals is found in parts of your uh, gene sequences that are not uh actually coding for things that happen in your body right now. Now, this leaves open the possibility that Neanderthals were indeed absorbed into a larger population of early modern humans. Now, there is also another major signal in some genomes, and that is of the Denisovans. There is an approximately 3.5% Denisovan-related DNA signature in modern-day Oceania individuals. This is present across Southeast Asia and Oceania, with very small amounts around 0.1% in East Asia, South Asia, and Native American populations. And so interestingly, we don't know where this admixture took place, as the population of Denisovans found in Siberia would have been only distantly related to the original to the origin source population of the admixture found in modern Southeast Asia and Oceania. Now, we're going to talk about that again uh, in a little bit as well. Now, the segments are longer than those found from Neanderthal DNA and suggest a more modern origin around 45 to 55,000 years ago. This DNA is also not generally found in functional regions and suggests a similar culling process by our modern genome to that of Neanderthal DNA. So basically, we have these signatures from the Denisovans and the Neanderthals, and a lot of it is just kind of a signal that we interbred with them at some point. It doesn't really confer any real um, advantages, though I know that um, I'm not going to talk about it tonight specifically, but I think that there is evidence that the ability for people in modern uh, Nepal and Tibet to be able to breathe at very high altitudes, to be able to handle Um, reduced oxygen levels may actually come from Denisovans, for instance. So there's not not anything that they conferred, but they tend to be very small um, conferrals. I think that um, some of the Southeast Asian Denisovan might have helped a little bit with um, the immune system. But again, these are small... um, additions rather than large functional areas being passed from these other populations and then being actually conserved in our DNA. And so there is also a slight signature around 0.1% found in East Asian populations, which is derived from a group that, in fact, is fairly closely related to Denisovans found in Siberia. Now, the researchers note that other events have been proposed, but do not have broad consensus. And interestingly, they do not believe that there is evidence for another ghost lineage that we have yet to identify. 
And that's something that I've definitely heard over the years. And so there's still some places where there's a ghost lineage, but not in the way that I've always thought about it. The authors write, some models of African population history have also included gene flow from lineages that diverged as early as or before Neanderthals, but simpler models have not been excluded. In our view, it is premature to refer to these various findings as archaic admixture, and they do not come with the same level of confidence as Neanderthal and Denisovan admixture, for which direct genomes from the source populations are available. Nonetheless, admixture from highly divergent groups inside Africa could help to explain the observed complex timing of early modern human separations. So basically, we know a lot and we also don't know a lot. <laughs> and that is going to be the theme for this evening is that as much as we like to think that we know what we're doing when it comes to these sorts of things, there's a lot of gaps. And conversely, though, just because there are a lot of gaps doesn't mean we don't know anything and that everything we know will eventually be overturned. Uh, there's definitely some information that we can glean, but we do have to be careful about the conclusions we make. And of course, as humans, we like to make conclusions. And so uh, some of the conclusions that have been made by people don't tend to hold up at this point, especially given new genetic research. And so older research obviously was mostly dependent on fossils. And as I mentioned, we don't have that many fossils. Uh, unfortunately, human bones aren't that great at uh, fossilizing, it seems. I mean, we have a lot of fragmentary pieces of bone. So we have a skull cap here. We have some, uh, you know, teeth there. For instance, uh, Denisovans are known from a jaw, a finger bone, and a couple of teeth. There might be one more thing, um, but that's not a lot. We don't actually know what a Denisovan would have looked like in any functional way that is helpful to our understanding of, um, you know, how they fit into the puzzle of early homo. And so um, that's a big thing. And again, we'll talk about that in more detail in a bit. But first, I want to go actually backwards in time. And I want to talk about the origin of humans in the sense of, um, first, we're going to talk about whether or not they actually did evolve in Africa. So there's been a lot of challenges to that over the years. And so the authors now say that there's still slight evidence, perhaps, that it could have happened in Southwest Asia, but it most likely happened in Africa. And obviously, a lot of what was going on in early hominids was happening in Africa. And so it's almost certain that it was in Africa, but it might have been in Southwest Asia, which which means we're talking about, you know, Iran uh, and the Middle East kind of an area. 
And so when we look at the fossil record, modern globular cranial vaults are found in skulls beginning around 150 to 200,000 years ago, with examples from Ethiopia dated to 195 to 160,000 years ago. Fragmentary remains may also hint at this from Greece from more than 210,000 years ago, Kenya from around 240, and South Africa from 260,000 years ago. Now, unfortunately, as I have noted several times, the fragmentary nature of the fossil record makes definitive identifications rather impossible. It seems there were several groups of human ancestors. Basically, this is what um, has become the sort of robust idea is that there were several groups of human ancestors with populations in West Africa, East Africa, the Central African rainforests, Southern Africa, and the rest of the world. And so modern day populations in Africa have varying ancestry involving different admixtures of these base populations. And so this diversification most likely happened after the split with the Neanderthals and Denisovans as they share similar admixtures from those two populations. Now, the authors repeatedly stress that there is no way to pinpoint a particular point of origin for the modern human being. And I think in some ways that's not a question that makes sense in the modern uh world. And so in our understanding now of how populations evolve, how um, evolution works on the population level, you know, you can't say with certainty when one, say you have a bird that is evolving and you have a chick that is uh, born and it's slightly different from its parent you can't necessarily know that that is going to become a separate species. Uh, right now, our main idea about what a separate species is uh, comes down to whether or not animals can interbreed. Uh, obviously, that isn't a hard line um, because we know that there are some species that are considered actual species. They're considered separate, but they can interbreed. And so it's not a hard line. It's a, this is kind of the, one of the best ways that we have of noticing um, whether or not a species is a species. And of course, now there's a lot of talk about whether, um, you know, how you can use genetics to determine a species, you know, what is the amount of difference in a genome that has to be present? Do those differences have to be in specific kinds of uh, functional areas. There's all sorts of different things that you can explore uh, talking about that sort of thing. And of course, taxonomy is wild. Um, it's still a very wild uh, science, even though it seems really, really simple. You just look at things and you put them in boxes. Um, but of course, as we know, things were put into boxes and then uh, gene sequences were run and it turned out that things we thought were really, really, really closely related turn out to be wildly unrelated. And things we thought were wildly unrelated turn out to be closely related. And so 
uh, again, taxonomy is a whole nother thing to talk about. And I have talked about it before. Um, it is a really wild science. Um, if you want to have lots of arguments about things, uh, I feel like taxonomy would be a good science to go into. Um, but anyways, getting back to hominids. So while some may look for the populations with the most divergent ancestry, that doesn't actually necessarily point to the oldest signal, especially when accounting for modern gene flow. They also note that people are likely to have moved from when their ancestors lived more than 200,000 years ago. There is no strong expectation that the geographical location of the people carrying the most divergent ancestry today would correspond to a point of origin. And so basically, people move around. So uh, it's unlikely that because there's so much genetic diversity in Africa, that the point is outside of Africa. But it doesn't mean that if you have the most genetically diverse people in West Africa now, that humans had to have developed in West Africa. Uh, because people might have moved to other areas of the continent. Um and so, yeah, that's always really important to think about is that, you know, you can't necessarily one-to-one -one lay down modern conceptions of what is happening with ancient conceptions of what is happening. So you can't say, well, these people have a particular genetic signature, so that must have happened in this area because humans are really good at moving around. Um, it's, it's really fascinating how good humans are at moving around. Uh, it, it's one of our things. <laughs> and um, so, yeah. As for the last common ancestor of modern and archaic humans, genomes can't help us much past five, the 500,000 year mark. When the genomes of the modern humans, Neanderthals and Denisovans converge and later split into separate lineages. The authors conclude that it is increasingly important to differentiate the evolution of traits, that is, when our ancestors became sufficiently similar to present-day humans in terms of anatomy, behavior, physiology, or cognition, from genetic ancestry. Asking when and where modern human ancestry originated is a different question from asking when and where modern humans, as defined through our traits, originated. And the answer to the first question that we have reviewed here may only weakly inform the latter. Any strict definition of origin thus risks oversimplifying the continuous and complex and in many aspects unknown nature of the deep human past. So there you have it. <laughs> uh, we know a lot of things and we don't know a lot of things. Um, and in some ways I wouldn't have it any other way because it means that we still get to learn lots of new things. And I get, I get to read new papers and tell you all about all the cool new uh, hypotheses and the new fossil finds. And so one of the things that they suggest in that paper is that people should go and look for fossils in places especially in Africa, where they haven't looked before, and try and actually flesh out the fossil record. And so, yeah. And so another recent paper in Science by Sergio Almaciha 
at the American Museum of Natural History and an international team from New York and Barcelona looked at the fossil record and the known traits of extant primates and concluded that we cannot derive the traits of the last common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees based solely on modern living apes, and that the ancestral apes would have had their own set of traits and that they would have been connected to a much larger lineage than is currently available for study in the remaining populations of primates. And so now we've gone back in time and we're talking about not just the origin of humans, but the origin of the last common ancestor between humans and uh, chimpanzees and bonobos. And so those are our closest cousins. I always like to point out that uh, the bonobos are the people, are the the species that you should really be looking at because they're a lot less human-like than the chimpanzees. And um, I think we could learn a thing or two from them uh, rather than from the chimpanzees who are an awfully lot like us. Um, they might not have built skyscrapers, but they really like to fight. And uh, yeah, the bonobos are a little bit more... Uh, they're a little bit more the hippies of the uh, primate world. Anyways. <laughs> and so basically what they're saying is that you can't just look at a chimpanzee and say, oh, that's what modern, uh, uh, that's what the least, last common ancestor must have looked like. It must have looked basically like a chimpanzee. But um, yeah, we can't just do that. But before we talk about that, it's actually time to do some PSAs and some show promos. So uh, please do stay tuned for that. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Steve in Lakewood, Colorado wants to know, what's the proper way to dispose of used household batteries? Well, Steve, alkaline batteries, the most widely used type, contain zinc, which can harm certain aquatic species. The federal regulators, unlike some states, do not consider them dangerous enough to require tr special treatment. Check out earth911.org to see if anyone collects alkaline batteries in your area. If not, look up Battery Solutions or the Big Green Box, who will recycle them for a fee. Rechargeable batteries, like those found in billions of cell phones, should definitely be recycled because they contain dangerous heavy metals like cadmium and lithium. However, thousands of stores nationwide take them back. Visit calltorecycle.org to find one near you. Finally, honor the mantra, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Fewer gadgets is a sure cure for disposal angst. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. Sundays from 4 to 6, please join Adam on the air for Metal Education. 
Each week, we'll delve into a different area of the genre, take requests, and generally cause mayhem, and enjoy our Sunday school. That's WXOJ FM Metal Education with Adam on the Air every Sunday. See you there. Are you interested in connecting with the international community in the Pioneer Valley? Then volunteer to help your immigrant neighbors improve their English and integrate better into their surroundings. Become a volunteer tutor. Take a free 15-hour training taught by the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. For more details on an application, go to ili.edu or contact Amy at ili.edu. Students come from Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America, and the Middle East. So volunteer to tutor and expand your world. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen, high blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke, and you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and you should also listen to Betty White and make sure that uh, you don't have high blood pressure. I had a bit of a scare at one point, but it turned out one of my medications was giving me high blood, borderline high blood pressure. So um, yeah, it's very important. All right, let us get back to talking about the LCA or last common ancestor of humans and uh, chimpanzees slash bonobos. <laughs> okay, so in this study, they note top-down, quote-unquote, approaches have relied on living apes, especially chimpanzees, to reconstruct hominin origins. However, bottom-up perspectives from the fossil record suggest that modern hominoids represent a decimated and biased sample of a larger ancient radiation and present alternative possibilities for the morphology and geography of the pan-homo LCA. Reconciling these two views remains at the core of the human origins problem. Now, again, part of the issue here is the fragmentation of the fossil record. But there is also an issue of morphological ambiguity. So basically, the problem is Miocene apes. They're they're kind of a mess. <laughs> uh, they are often mosaic, which means they have a mixture of primitive and derived features. And therefore, sometimes they're just left out of the modern hominid radiation because people don't really know what to do with them. However, most researchers agree that some of these apes are either stem or crown members of the hominid clade, meaning that they either preceded the divergence between orangutans or Pongenes, and African great apes and humans, hominines, or as part of the modern great ape radiation. Now, the authors suggest that increased habit fragmentation during the late Miocene in Africa might be the root cause of, for instance, the evolution of African ape knuckle walking and hominin bipedalism from an orthograde arboreal ancestor. 
By the way, orthograde means an upright stance with independent limb movement. And if you want to think about an a uh, modern animal that is an orthograde arboreal animal uh, rather than a biped or knuckle walking African ape. Think of like lemurs, how they kind of hop while they're standing up and their arms are kind of akimbo. That's kind of what they're talking about because they're kind of made for being in the trees, but they can also stand kind of upright. Um, but you can tell that that's not their normal stance. They tend to be, um, they tend to be uh, on all fours most of the time, or climbing in trees. So arboreal. Now the paper points to the fact that there is again a lot that we still don't know. For instance, there continues to be robust debate over whether. Uh, Australopithecus afarensis was arboreal or bipedal. Part of this comes from the fact that traits that are necessary for bipedalism can also be indications of orthography and arboreal suspension, but not necessarily bipedalism. So for instance, you might have um, bones that look like they could be for upright walking, but they might just be for being able to do that kind of jumping around and might also be for, um, the arms might be for being able to suspend themselves using their hands on branches in a tree. And so some traits are just not uh, indicative enough. There is serious issue with looking at them and being able to say, oh yes, that is absolutely a, you know, a bone that was made for walking upright versus a bone that was made for um, orthography or orthography, I should say. Um, and so if you have a fragmentary skeleton, you may not have enough markers to truly point to bipedalism in a particular species. Thus, the authors conclude that more feed field work is necessary. And they also suggest, a lot of these papers were coming to very similar conclusions, which is always kind of, uh, you know, it can be very nice to know that because it seems like, okay, people are coming to this same uh, conclusion, but also um, you definitely want to look for people outside of these papers. Um, and I didn't see that much to um, that much criticism of these papers. So it seems like they're pretty solid and they're, you know, mostly what they're saying is we don't know. Uh, so it's kind of hard to criticize that. <laughs> um and so they, again, say that you need to be exploring and finding a more re robust fossil record in order to be able to more precisely outline the evolution of hominids. And finally, they caution, and I thought this was a really, really great quote, so I'm going to read it in full. Humans are storytellers. Theories of human evolution often resemble anthropogenic narratives, quote unquote, 
that borrow the structure of a hero's journey to explain essential aspects such as the origins of erect posture, the freeing of the hands, or brain enlargement. Intriguingly, such narratives have not drastically changed since Darwin. We must be aware of confirmation biases and ad hoc interpretations by researchers aiming to confer their new fossil with starring roles within a pre-existing narrative. Evolutionary scenarios are appealing because they provide plausible explanations based on current knowledge, but unless grounded in testable hypotheses, they are no more than just so stories. And so I think that's a really important point and uh, definitely something to keep in mind. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about some of the kind of uh, more specific areas where we know some things and still don't know other things. Uh, and so the first one we're going to talk about is new genome sequences of populations in Oceania. And so this has shown that there were at least three extant species of hominin present in the area at various points, including the hobbits of Indonesia, another species of hominin from the Philippines, and Denisovans. Now, the researchers sequenced the genomes of over 300 volunteers from 20 different populations throughout the Pacific. They were grouped into two large groups, near Oceania, Indonesia, New Guinea, and the Philippines, and far Oceania, Micronesia, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, Fiji, and Polynesia, among other small islands. Modern influxes of humans came first from Aboriginal Australians, then separate populations came from New Guinea and nearby island chains, and finally Polynesians who descended from early East Asians. They found that the people who inhabit the highlands of Papua New Guinea had the earliest split from other populations at around 40,000 years ago, um, which doesn't actually surprise me. Um, and so the branches of that population then split around 20,000 years ago as separate populations moved to the Bismarck and Solomon Islands, respectively. On Vanuatu, about a third of their genome comes from Bismarck Islanders who arrived around 3,000 years ago. The rest come from a population that originated in Papua, but stopped in the Solomon Islands on the way and interbred with that population before reaching Vanuatu. And so the Polynesians seem to have interbred with both the Bismarck and Solomon Islanders, most likely when they first arrived in the area around 3,500 years ago and a second time around 1,000 years later. All of the samples had roughly the same amount of Neanderthal DNA, but interestingly, they have different ratios of Denisovan DNA, the highest being found in the population of New Guinea Highlanders. Analysis of these Denisovan signatures in the genome were used to determine two things. The length of the sequences gave clues as to how long ago the encounters took place, as we've previously learned that these sequences tend to get smaller over time due to recombination and a lack of conservation. In addition, the signatures could be compared to those of DNA sequences from Denisovan remains found in Siberia, which can then help us better understand the diversity of Denisovan populations. 
For the East Asian and Polynesian populations, there seem to have been two periods of interbreeding, both with Denisovans, who are reasonably close in genetic makeup to the Siberian population. The people of Papua New Guinea, on the other hand, also had two periods of interbreeding, but neither was a Denisovan population closely related to the Siberian population. The first interbreeding event took place around 45,000 years ago, with a population that had diverged from the Siberian Denisovans by roughly 200,000 years ago. The second took place around 25,000 years ago, when that population of Papuans had already reached the Pacific. Which is interesting, because we have yet to find fossil remains of Denisovans in the Pacific. What we do find are Homo erectus, which are genetically quite different. Uh, one would assume they're a much more um, basal species. And the two pygmy species of Homo, the hobbits of Flores and Homo luzonensis from the island of Luzon. These two species are morphologically very different from modern humans, including sharing some traits of Australopiths. But it may turn out that they were more closely related to Denisovans. Unfortunately, we have yet to obtain any genetic material from the remains thus far for these two populations. In the end, either they are the origin of the Denisovan signal in the Papuan populations, or they were genetic dead ends that did not contribute to the genetic makeup of present-day populations. Now, another interesting fact is that while these populations clearly had seafaring capabilities, they seem to have mostly stayed put, only interbreeding a few times, about as often as they did with each other as they did with Denisovans. It actually wasn't until the Polynesians arrived that they began to interact and trade more widely. And so another group of researchers led by Joao Texiera of the University of Adelaide have also been studying the possible origins of Homo florensis and Homo luzonensis and have come to similar conclusions. It was funny, when I saw this second paper, I was like, they must have been, you know, there must be some research uh, overlap between the two groups. And I didn't find one. So apparently this is a hot button issue that a lot of people want to know about. Uh, and so they also found signatures of interbreeding between Neanderthals and Denisovans, but no suggestion of another sig signature that might be from those two, quote unquote, super archaics, as the two island species are often called. This is because, again, they share those more primitive features with species such as Australopithecus. Now, unfortunately, again, as noted above, we have no direct genetic sequences from any of H. floresiensis, H. luzonensis, or H. erectus. There are no first-hand genomes of the kind we have from Neanderthals and Denisovans, but there are second-hand bits of DNA in the Denisovan genome that seem to come from having interbred with a super-archaic population, explained co-author Chris Stringer, an anthropologist from the Natural History Museum in London in an email to Gizmodo. These can be recognized by their greater than average divergence within the genome and also if there has been recent interbreeding, the strands of DNA will have been shuffled up less and hence found in larger and more pristine chunks. 
Now, showing off the complexity of even just this story, Tiaxera believes that the absence of interbreeding with the quote-unquote super archaics as a distinct genetic signature suggests that they may actually be found to have interbred and that they are actually the origin of the as-yet-unaccounted-for Denisovan signal, thus being an offshoot or a southern species of Denisovan. No one knows for sure what a Denisovan is supposed to look like, nor how much morphological variation existed within different Denisovan populations, he explained. If that is the case, the revelation that the super archaics are actually the southern Denisovans could have serious implications for paleoanthropology. Stringer, on the other hand, thinks that they are indeed descended from a erectus and did not meaningfully interbreed with the ancestors of modern humans. The known fossils of H. erectus, H. floriensis, and H. luzinensis might seem to be in the right place and time to represent the mysterious southern Denisovans, but their ancestors were likely to have been placed in island Southeast Asia long before the Denisovan lineage had evolved, and possibly as long as 700,000 years ago, Stringer explained. What they do agree on is that there was a mixture of southern Denisovans and Homo sapiens in the region of Oceania, and therefore Denisovans must have been present and either are represented by the superarchaics or in the yet to be found fossil record. Stringer suggests there remains might be found in Sumatra, Borneo, or Sulawesi. We'll have to see what is found in modern times. Okay, so we are quickly going to talk about one more of these kind of crazy, odd stories about how things might have come together. And so, yeah, it's very interesting <laughs> how there's things that we totally know about and make total sense in science. And then there's things like this that are just like, yeah, we don't really know. <laughs> um, okay. So it looks like there was a turnover of modern human populations, not just in Europe after the last glacial maximum, but also in East Asia. Some of the first modern humans reached East Asia some 40,000 years ago and spread out across the northern China Plateau for thousands of years, hunting red deer and potentially encountering Neanderthals and Denisovans. But sometime after the last Ice Age, they disappeared from the fossil and genetic record. By 19,000 years ago, a new group had arrived on the plateau, hunter-gatherers, who are the ancestors of the people who lived in the region today. This is a pattern familiar to those who study early modern humans in Europe. Modern humans reached Europe around 45,000 years ago, but these too were replaced between 19,000 and 14,000 years ago. It's exciting to see some real parallels in Europe and Asia, says population geneticist David Reich of Harvard Medical School, who was not part of the new study. There's enough genome now to show that there were real population replacements in East Asia as well as Europe. And so the research started with the DNA sequence of a male jawbone found in the Tianyuan cave near Beijing which showed that modern humans reached the area by 40,000 years ago. 
and they were still dominant some 34,000 years ago, according to DNA from a female skullcap found in Mongolia's Selkit Valley. But after that, they seemingly vanished into thin air. By 12,000 years ago, the archaeological the archaeological record shows new to- new stone toolkits and pottery, but it was unclear if this was from that original population sort of re-emerging or a new population entering the scene. There were definitely modern humans living in East Asia 40,000 years ago, but who knows what happened to them, says paleo- paleogeneticist Kwame Fu of the Chinese Academy of Sciences. So she and her and a team of Chinese researchers decided to see if they could find out. They took samples from bone fragments of 25 individuals recovered from construction sites in Russia's Amur region on the eastern edge of the Chinese plateau. Radiocarbon dating put these bones at between 34,000 and 3,400 years old. The oldest, a female who lived between 34,000 and 32,000 years ago, was closely related to the 40,000-year-old Tianyuan man. And both she and Tianyuan man shared about 75% of their DNA with the woman from Mongolia's Salkit Valley, suggesting they belonged to interrelated groups roaming the the area of East Asia for at least 7,000 years. But by the end of the last glacial maximum, around 19,000 years ago, they disappeared. DNA from a 19,000-year-old male suggests he was descended from a different lineage that moved into the Amur region, and that population is the ancestors of today's population in the region. His DNA, along with two other males from around 14,000 years old, are also closely related to Siberian males who may have been the ancestors of Native Americans. And in addition, these populations are connected to the modern populations of Northern East Asia, but not Southern, as we've previously discussed. Those have a different signal with more Denisovan. And so those two populations seem to have split off at least 19,000 years ago, 9,000 years earlier than previously believed. Okay, so that was a lot. Um, (laughs) I hope that uh, you enjoyed it and that it made sense. Um, (laughs) And um, yeah, thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great evening. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.